Proverbs 27, 14 is genuinely funny. It says that anyone who blesses his neighbor with a loud voice early in the morning, it will be counted as a curse to him. Hey, a uh, skeptical friend, you could say amen to that. <laughs> I, I, I think this means that I might have that curse on me because we had our outdoor services last weekend and we got up in front of the, it really happened at all of them. And I was just so excited to be in front of everybody at Highlands that I just freaked out for a minute. And so I got to apologize to the 8.30 service for greeting you with a loud voice early in the morning. Sorry about that. Apparently I'm cursed because of this. Jesus, when asked what the greatest commandment was, answered, of course, perfectly. It's in Matthew 22, verse 36. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? He said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these commands. I've collected Proverbs that speak to how we can thrive in relationships. And thriving in relationships, I think, is a beautiful symptom of adherence to the second greatest command. The first great command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. The, the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. I want us to look at Proverbs that show us how we can thrive in relationships. Give us specific practices exegeted from the given texts so that we may, in reflecting upon the beauty of the second greatest commandment, see the importance of the first greatest commandment. So my skeptical friend, you're going to see some beautiful relationship advice and you could practice everything in Proverbs that pertains to relationships. And it's going to serve you really well. But I pray, I pray that you don't count upon adherence to the second greatest commandment to save your soul because it won't. Only the first greatest commandment would do that. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. This vertical relationship readies our hearts for our horizontal relationships. This relationship with God changes everything about the way that we relate to one another, how we love our neighbors as ourselves. We'll talk more about the second greatest commandment. To thrive in your relationships is to be exactly who you are in Christ as a child of God, uncompromisingly, and then selflessly and relentlessly love other people until you die. This is what it means to thrive in relationship, to be forthright in your convictions and honest about your shortcomings. And there in that candid spirit filled state to be loved and to thrive in your relationships, to know that your identity is rooted in the irrevocable fact that you are God's child, to love yourself as a result, and then to look at every other person in the world as he or she is made in the image of God and to love your neighbor is to thrive in relationships. Let's begin with Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for a difficult time. Altadena Valley Presbyterian in Birmingham, Alabama. That's my brother's church, his family's church. When I got the word that my brother Zach, my sister-in-law, Allie's daughter, Elle, who was three years old, woke up unresponsive, I drove straight from Nashville to Birmingham and the people who were already there when I got there were members of their small group. 
who knew exactly who I was, who asked me if I was still drumming. They had known about me for like a decade. It's because Zach and Allie were a part of this small group for years. And the whole extended family that came to Birmingham didn't cook a meal, didn't have to do a thing because these people were there constantly. It was beautiful. A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for a difficult time. These friends loved my brother and his bride and my nieces and my nephews in Birmingham at all times and for decades. Thank you, Altadena Valley Presbyterian. I learned a lot about small group ministry from that day. I pray that you likewise would have such a spiritual family of God here at Highlands Community Church. That if you're isolated, if you're alone, that you would exercise these biblical principles in the context of a small group at Highlands. And that you, together with your brothers and sisters in Christ, would spill your guts, establish accountability, and you would apply your lives side by side, shoulder to shoulder, to whatever scripture we are studying as a church, reading individually, applying our lives to it, and discussing it, and asking questions in small groups, and then hearing from it here in this context. May you have a family of God through a small group at Highlands Community Church, a friend who loves at all times. Proverbs 27, 9. Oil and incense bring joy to the heart and the sweetness of a friend is better than self-counsel. I believe when Solomon writes about oil and incense that he is describing the oil and the incense that was originally prescribed in Exodus chapter 30. And, and the same oil and incense that were used in worship, both in the tabernacle, which the Israelites would set up and break down throughout the Exodus, and then in the temple, which Solomon, our own author, would oversee and build as, as it was prophesied that he would. So when he describes oil and incense bringing joy to the heart, I think about my grandmother's kitchen. And when I smell anything like it, it's like Ratatouille style. I'm brought back there to the white and blue linoleum floors and the wood panel walls. And I get excited to open up Christmas presents for my cousins. Or like when you walk to Pike and you're going to the market, which in Jesus' name will open. Man, that would be so be I miss it, don't you guys? And you turn that corner right by La Paniere and then Mushi Deli is in front of you. And as you keep walking, you begin to hear, like smell Poroshki, Poroshki. And all the most like beautiful flowers you've ever seen in your life are coming from a cross pike. And all of these smells combine to make just like the most incredible smell ever. I associate emotionally with certain locales given what they smell like. And I believe that this was the intention behind God's very strict orders regarding the oil and the incense associated with worship. The same oil, the same incense that I think that Solomon is describing here. Here's Exodus 30, verses 37 and 38. As for the incense you are making, you must not make any for yourselves using its formula. It is to be regarded by you as holy, belonging to the Lord. Anyone who makes something like it to smell its fragrance must be cut off from his people. God told Moses to recruit an expert perfumer to get the exact portions correct of myrrh and cinnamon and cane and cassia and olive oil, a recipe that was used exclusively for the anointing of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. 
We see two uses for oil and anointing in the Bible. One is for anointing people, but this was a specific oil that was to be used only in anointing the tent of meeting. We see five other verses in the New Testament describing anointing in a different sense, but it's never clearly stated in scripture the exact purpose of that. I believe that Solomon is evoking the same oil that was used both in tabernacle worship and then in the temple later on. That recipe was preserved only for that purpose. And the same was true of the incense. There was an exact recipe that God gave and an expert was called upon to craft that precise, that precise mixture of the necessary ingredients. Can you imagine that day that Moses comes to you and like, you're like, I just, I just have a perfume business, but like God has a job for you. I believe this is the oil, this is the incense that makes the heart glad that Solomon is describing. I believe that he's talking about the smells associated with worship. So these brothers and sisters, that these, these friends, the sweetness that comes from a friend, I believe that it's directly affiliated with somebody that you worship with in the Old Testament. I pray that the smell of Highlands Kent, the smell of Highlands Renton, I pray that that evokes a similar, similar beautiful emotional response as your olfactory system, the faculties by which you taste and smell would be associated with times of passionate worship in spirit and in truth with hands raised towards heaven, shouts of amen to the proclamation of the gospel and the word of God, right there shoulder to shoulder with your brothers and sisters in Christ, that the smell of your friend's kitchen, your small group leaders home would evoke that beautiful sense of belonging and brotherhood and authenticity and restoration and candor. This is the kind of joy that was in the heart of the one who receives that sweetness from a friend in this proverb. Sweetness from a friend is better than self-counsel. That's profound, isn't it? Self-counsel can't always be trusted because our views of ourselves can be swayed by our own sinful proclivities. I can counsel myself right into a pit of despair and I can strip myself of all of my worth, but I can be restored by sweetness from a friend. The sweetness from a friend has rescued me from my own self-counsel, whether it's toward delusion because my own self-counsel would be stained by my own pride or toward despair and self-hatred, which is unbiblical too. How can I love others if I hate myself? What worth do I see in them if I'm lying about it? I, I've been rescued from despair more than once in my life by sweetness from a friend right here at God's church. Listen to, listen to verse 10. Don't abandon your friend or your father's friend and don't go to your brother's house in your time of calamity. Better a neighbor nearby than a brother far away. If your own blood relatives, people with whom you share genetic code have just failed you and abused you and turned on you and abandoned you, would you find a new family of God right here at Highlands Community Church in a small group? One of the practices that I see as I survey all of Proverbs together, insofar as it pertains to our relationships and how we might thrive in them, I see a repeated call to forgive. We must practice forgiveness. Here's Proverbs 25, 21. 21 and 22, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink for you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. You have no idea just what tremendous things God might do through such a radical act of forgiveness. Just ask Malcolm Gladwell, like one of the best authors alive, author of five New York Times bestsellers, like Outliers and Blink and What the Dog Saw and The Tipping Point. When he was researching for his book, David and Goliath, 
he came upon the story of the Durskins, whose daughter, Candace, vanished on November 30th of 1984. The largest search in Canadian history was launched, and the results of the search shocked the world. Before the killer was found, the Durskins had already decided in their hearts, because of a warning they received from another parent of a murdered child, to forgive, to just choose to forgive. And so they chose to forgive. These were believers in God who had decided to forgive their daughter's murderer no matter what. Can you imagine choosing to forgive somebody who has not asked for forgiveness? Choosing to forgive somebody who is likely not sorry about what he or she did? This was their decision. And it only gets worse from there because this decision to forgive informed the way that they presented themselves when they were on camera. And their forgiveness in their hearts was misconstrued and actually drew suspicion. How horrific. One journalist, Gordon Sinclair, had the gall in 1985 on a phone call to ask them if they'd even cried over their daughter's murder. A survey of all Canada revealed that 80% of the whole country thought it was wrong of them to practice this forgiveness because it condoned murder, as though those two, were, those two thoughts are the same thing. Friends and relatives betrayed them to the media, and they, became, they came under the world's suspicion because they had chosen to forgive their daughter's killer even while it was an unresolved case. And then it only got more difficult for them once it was revealed through two investigations that confirmed in their hearts that Mark Edward Grant, a then 21-year-old at the time of the murder, who suffered from mental illness and came from a deeply abusive background himself, it only got more difficult then because now, now they had a face and a name to associate with all of it. And they describe it now as a daily decision to continue to walk in that forgiveness. But look at what God has done from that forgiveness. Not only has he set the Durskins free from the other traps and snares the enemy would set along their way, but beautiful organizations have been brought about that come alongside other parents in a similar situation. Moreover, Malcolm Gladwell, who had long drifted away from his belief in God instilled in him by the Mennonite faith in which he grew up, came back to Christ because this beautiful demonstration of forgiveness reminded him of the forgiveness that Christ offers us. You don't know what God will do through a radical act of forgiveness. If you choose to obey this proverb and to meet the needs of your enemy, not only would it heap burning coals on their heads, but the Lord will reward you. Forgiveness is a necessity for thriving in relationships this side of heaven. One day to the glory of God, it won't be necessary anymore. That day that we're in heaven and we're perfected and glorified in his presence and our sin is washed away forevermore, that'll be great. In the meantime, though, we still are walking. We're still walking in step with the spirit and we're walking through the process of sanctification. We're still, waking, we're still waging war with our own sin natures. And like Peter writes to the church, we must necessarily bear with one another in love, forgiving whatever grievances we have against one another because love covers a multitude of wrongs. If I haven't failed you yet, just give me a minute, okay? Forgiveness is necessary in a church of imperfect people. And that same thing is true of you, my friend. Practice silence. I see this in Proverbs that pertain to how we may thrive in relationships. Proverbs 11, 12, and 13. Whoever shows contempt for his neighbor lacks sense, but a person with understanding keeps silent. A gossip 
goes around revealing a secret, but a trustworthy person keeps a confidence. Sometimes it's not just what you say in relationships, it's what you don't say that would allow your relationships to thrive. Be trustworthy. Proverbs 17, 14, to start a conflict is to release a flood. Stop the dispute before it breaks out. If you go about instigating a conflict in this regard, you are unleashing a flood and you will have to answer for the tremendous collateral damage that you knowingly incur when you start a conflict. Choose instead to stop the dispute before it breaks out. Proverbs 17, 14. Proverbs 19, 11. A person's insight gives him patience and his virtue is to overlook an offense. This is completely lost in our culture where if somebody offends you, you now wear a badge of honor and you feel like you have power over your alleged oppressor. Rather, this would tell you to overlook an offense, to show grace instead. And some translations render this, it is to your glory to overlook an offense. Practice silence, practice grace. Proverbs 25, 17, seldom set foot in your neighbor's house. Otherwise he'll get sick of you and hate you. Got to give relationships the room that they need to grow. And if you're a bit of a hermit and you don't like too many visitors, Proverbs 25, 17 would make a beautiful piece of art to go on your front door. Proverbs 17, 27, the one who has knowledge restrains his words and one who keeps a cool head is a person of understanding. I see this one as particularly pertinent in the context of familial conflict, relationships with relatives, people with whom you happen to share genetic code and that's about it. Like you know that your kids and their kids are gonna be bound forever for a life and so what are you gonna do? When you have certain conflicts, like you know, a dispute on the internet, you can just turn off notifications and walk away. But you can't turn off Christmas Eve at grandma's house because it has this way of just coming back every year forever. So you show grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. The one who has knowledge restrains his words and one who keeps a cool head is a person of understanding. Practice self-awareness. Self-awareness at least in my experience, only comes about through pain. Proverbs 17.10, a rebuke cuts into a perceptive person more than a hundred lashes into a fool. Why does that rebuke cut into the perceptive person? Is it because he has a fragile ego and can't handle like the least bit of criticism? Or is it because he regrets his sin nature and mourns when that sinful side bears sinful fruit? Be aware of your sin nature. Know this about yourself. Know this about yourself. I love Puritan authors, but some of them can go too far in acknowledging the sin nature. It can even devalue humanity itself to the point that we are no longer have any worth, even as image bearers of God. Be aware of yourself and your sin nature, but don't strip yourself of all of your worth. You bear the image of God. God. You hear that, my skeptical friend? When I look at you, I see the reflection of your creator. You bear the image of God and this gives you worth. That's incredible. Now we're also born into a sin nature. And so we know this about ourselves. And for that reason, a rebuke cuts into the perceptive person more than a hundred lashes into a fool. Okay. This is not condoning the abuse of people. This, is, this would be illegal 
in the biblical sense. It's metaphor. It is, it is exaggerating. Like even a hundred lashes into a fool would not sway him, but a rebuke would cut a perceptive person because the fool is undeterred in his foolishness, even by an like ridiculously exaggerated number of lashes. Okay, would you consider if there are ways in which you have been the fool, you just take like lash after lash after lash and you remain undeterred, like maybe it's time to listen. Whereas a rebuke would cut to the heart of somebody who is perceptive. If you have self-awareness, you know your sinful proclivities. That rebuke would cut to the heart and you would thank the person who gave it to you. Proverbs 27, six, the wounds of a friend are trustworthy, but the kisses of an enemy are excessive. It's better to receive a wound from a friend. A difficult confrontational moment from a friend who has your best interests at heart, sees you objectively from the outside looking in, sees a shortcoming and an opportunity for improvement in your heart, your life, your relationship skills, your career, whatever it is, and brings this to you. Though it wounds you at first, you can genuinely thank him. You can thank her. And that's way better than meaningless flattery from an enemy. Proverbs 17, 17, iron sharpens iron and one person sharpens another. Literally translated from the Hebrew, a man sharpens his friend's face. How do you sharpen iron? Man, you got to chisel away the stuff that's on their face that doesn't look like God. It's only, only way to come, that can come about is through self-awareness, confession of sin, and a little bit of pain. Proverbs 17, 18, one without sense enters an agreement and puts up security for his friend. Okay, finances, can ruin a friendship. In Proverbs 6, 1 through 5, Solomon tells his sons, get out of that agreement. If you agreed to put up security for a friend, do whatever it takes. Don't let your eyelids see sleep. Get out of that relationship. Finances have this terrible way of ruining friendships. Proverbs 27, uh, 26, 17 through 19, a person who is passing by and meddles in a quarrel that is not his is like one who grabs a dog by the ears. Has that proverb ever been more applicable than it is now in the era of social media? Oh man. If you ever want to get offended, if you want an argument to get in, just take the little machine out of your pocket and just scroll for a few seconds. You won't have to go far. You'll have plenty of reasons to be offended. A limitless stream of arguments that you can jump right into, arguments that have nothing to do with you. Man, I have seen collateral damage reach well across the church from somebody picking up an offense. They weren't even the ones offended. It had nothing to do with them. They chose to become offended regarding something that had nothing to do with them. That's like grabbing a dog by the ears. Okay, right there by the mouth, you're going to get bitten, man. Look at, look at verse 18, also from Proverbs 26. Like a madman who throws flaming darts and deadly arrows, so is the person who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. Man, <laughs> There is a tendency, and I see this more commonly among men than women, but it definitely, definitely exists in, in women as well, to say something that is passive, aggressive, to say something that really is an insult and cuts to the heart, and then to laugh boisterously over what you just did, or to frame it all like, hey, look, I was just joking, man, chill out, don't be so sensitive. Right, this, this proverb is about you, my friend. Like a madman who throws flaming darts and deadly arrows, so is the person who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. Trade in that passive aggression disguised as humor for candor, honesty. Proverbs 29, 5. A person who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet, 
Now it's not immediately clear whose feet we're talking about, but I believe it could apply to both. You spread a net for your own feet when you just use flattery to build somebody up. And then what happens when you have to be real with them and candid, like your first honest moment is something harsh when everything else you've said has been positive, but it wasn't really genuine. Moreover, you set a net for your own feet because your neighbor is likely smart enough to know when you're just trying to ingratiate yourself. In a Machiavellian sense, you're just trying to ingratiate yourself. And they know this, they see this. So your attempts to ingratiate yourself actually breed mistrust from the onset. You set a net for your own feet. But likewise, you set a net for your neighbor's feet when you flatter them because you could contribute to delusion and help reinforce blind spots. Don't set a trap. Don't set a sp- uh, spread a net for your neighbor with flattery. Mean what you say and say only what you mean. Practice trust. This one's hard, right? Proverbs 3, 28 and 29. Don't say to your neighbor, go away, come back later. I'll give it tomorrow when it's there with you. Don't plan any harm against your neighbor for he trusts you and lives near you. Now, verse 28 compels us in the same way that 1 John 3, 17 compels and convicts and even indicts us. When we have what we need, to meet the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we choose not to help them. Listen to 1 John three seventeen. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer, literally his brother or sister, in need, but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Okay, don't say to your neighbor, go away, come back later. I'll give it tomorrow when it's there with you. Now, verse 29, don't plan any harm against your neighbor should in Jesus' name dismantle every scheme that every person associated with Highlands Community Church and tuning into this sermon has. If you have a scheme, you intend to do harm to your neighbor in Jesus' name, may it fall apart right there in your hands. Let's answer to God and be accountable. It also brings up the matter of trust. It tells us he trusts you. He lives near you. I mean, that trust that your neighbor has in you obligates you. The trust that my neighbors have in me, it obligates me. It's not something to be taken lightly. Trust is incredibly easy to lose and incredibly difficult to get back once it's lost. Now, I know this is a wound for some people because there's a strategy in self-preservation that unfortunately is actually quite effective. Just choose to never trust anyone ever. No one is ever actually going to know the real me. I'm just going to lock it up. I'm going to keep everybody way out there at arm's length, and that way nobody can ever hurt me. I'm just going to choose to never trust anyone. As a result, you will never thrive in a relationship. Nobody will actually know you because you put up a mask and a front You keep them at arm's length. The gospel enables us to trust and then trust again. Now, there are limits to this. Obviously, it may be to the the glory of God that you would cut off a relationship that has only borne destruction in your heart and in your life. But if you choose to just never trust anybody ever again because you've been burned, I mean, just join the club and look in a mirror, my friend. There's sinners just like you and me. But the gospel promises something audacious. The gospel of Jesus Christ promises something that is incredible that doesn't exist anywhere else in any other faith system or worldview, especially not atheism, my skeptical friend. 
Because of the gospel, you can believe that someone may be radically transformed. Because of the gospel, you believe that somebody can be restored. Because of the gospel, you can trust, maybe not the sinful person, his or herself, but you can trust the Holy Spirit's ability to convict and bring about repentance. And you trust the Holy Spirit. And so because of the gospel, you can choose to trust and then choose to trust again. And that trust is necessary to thrive in relationships. Practice fulfilling God's mission side by side. Listen to Proverbs 15, 22. Plans fail when there's no counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. Again, my skeptical friend, I mean, like that's just common sense, right? That is just beautiful and brilliant and clear. And I know you agree with it. And it's the word of God. Do you remember what it was like when you were a kid? Okay, students, you have this incredible opportunity to build deep relationships and friendships. It's never gonna be this easy again. Okay, like especially high school students and college students, like it's never that easy ever again to build friendships because especially like if you ride the bus to school, if buses are ever legal again, there's this big giant yellow smelly machine full of people who need Jesus that shows up at your house every single day. And if you go to public school, then you get on this bus and you're surrounded by people who need Jesus. And then whatever kind of school you go to, it doesn't matter, whatever your school setting, you are surrounded by people with whom you can join in on a mission especially like with sports and activities and the arts. Are you and somebody with whom you have nothing else in common, somebody with whom you would never be a friend in a million years, if you're both on the same football team, you're both trying to get the exact same ball into the exact same end zone. And he just became your brother. And the two of you have this shared mission. And that makes you friends when you otherwise wouldn't be because you have this shared mission. In the context of music, If you're a part of a group and you're making music together, it's not enough for you to play only your part. The ensemble's not complete. The score is incomplete. If you only play your lines, you need his music and her music and your music together combines to actually complete the piece. And you guys are going to competition. You can't in drama or theater just get up and recite only your lines. That would make no sense. And your mom would be the only one with a ticket. Rather, you need these other people to come in and do their parts, recite their lines and sing sing their parts. It's not complete without them. And so this is, this is unique to that phase of life. When you become an adult, man, there's no big yellow machine full of people who need Jesus that shows up at your house every day. There's nobody like forcing you to this context where you have this like shared mission with other people. You have to be proactive. You have to take initiative. You have to risk rejection. You have to endure some awkward first dinners with people. You actually have to reach out and initiate friendships later in life. And when you have something shared and in common, oh man, it becomes so beautiful, such a beautifully unifying effect. Here's what I propose, okay? You may not be able to go back and play high school football again, but what better mission to have in common than the mission of the living God to reach out and make disciples of everybody, of every nation, everybody who would call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. This far outweighs any quest for a state championship in any field that you would be one of the many advisors on your ministry team who together, together you succeed. And what, what else could possibly be better than succeeding in the mission of God? So practice fulfilling the mission of God shoulder to shoulder and watch how this unified mission unifies the team. And you can thrive in relationships because the two of you are teammates in the mission of God to bring revival by the power of the Holy Spirit, evidenced by deep repentance with people from every nation, all the beautiful diversity of highlands, 
It becomes all the beautiful diversity of Seattle, Renton, and in Kent. As you, thriving in relationships with fellow members of your small group and your ministry team, see God bring about fruit, fulfill God's mission side by side with others. And you can see that you're not alone in this. What was the final part of the great commission that Jesus gave us? I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. Listen to the beautiful parallel, the foreshadowing of this proverb and what Jesus taught. Proverbs 8, 17. I love those who love me and those who search for me, find me. Tell me if you hear echoes of that in what Jesus said in Matthew 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Proverbs 8:17 is the metaphorical woman wisdom representing foreshadowing of Jesus a thousand years later. Jesus, the logos, the basis, the standard for logic. Hear that parallel between logos, the Greek word used to describe Jesus, the word for word and logic. The metaphorical woman wisdom in Proverbs 8, 17 just said something that is echoed by Jesus 1,000 years later. It is absolutely incredible. You'll see a similar parallel in Proverbs 25, 6, and 7 and what Jesus says in Luke 14. It is incredible. The advice is exactly the same, but it's given in a parable form. Jesus taught from the Proverbs. It's amazing to see. I want to close by reminding us of the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. These horizontal relationships, our relationships with one another, thrive when we have our vertical relationship, our relationship with God properly oriented. The second great greatest commandment tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves. The first, the greatest commandment, however, my skeptical friend, is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul. Would you give your life to Jesus Christ right now? Would you properly see that vertical relationship by the power of the Holy Spirit set right so that then you can love your neighbor as yourself? You can practice self-awareness because you've confessed sin. You can practice forgiveness because you know you've been forgiven. You can join in community and serve in the mission of God shoulder to shoulder because you love the same Lord right here and now, if you are isolated, if you are alone, if you feel just dead in your sin and convicted for it in your isolation, that where the enemy just lies to you and speaks to you words of unworth, would you right here and now by the power of the Holy Spirit of God come in obedience to the greatest commandment by confessing that Jesus is Lord, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then you can love your neighbor as yourself upon the authoritative standard for what love is and who love is right here and now pray with me give your life to jesus love god so that you can love everybody god i believe you i believe that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son that if i would believe in him i would not die but have everlasting life and I confess that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I confess that the wages of that sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And I believe you, Jesus, when you yourself said that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no way I can come to God the Father except through you, Jesus.
So right here and now, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Would you say Jesus is Lord out loud right now? Just say it. Jesus is Lord. And type it in the comments for good measure. Jesus is Lord. God, I believe in my heart that you rose Jesus from the dead. And so I pray right now, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. Jesus' name, amen. You love God so that you can love others. This is how you thrive in relationships.